And in the course of a conversation, he says to me, you know, Jamie, you need to choose and you need to get independent. And when he said those words about getting independent, it completely focused everything about my recovery. I mean, it was, it was my vector. This episode of the Ben and Bikes podcast is brought to you by Dr. Squatch Natural Soap for Men. Let's face it, chaps, after a long day in the saddle, we stink. Now you can upgrade your shower game with Dr. Squatch Natural Soap. You want to smell like the forest? There's pine tar. You want to smell like the sea? There's nautical sage. And if you want to smell like you just got off a boat in the Caribbean, there's bay rum. Visit drsquatch.com. That's D-R-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H dot com for more detail. And now to this week's episode of Bed and Bikes. You're listening to Ben and Bikes with your host, Ben Lockett. This podcast is about bikes, but more about the people who ride them and their stories, and less about frame size, shock technology, or even the Tour de France. This is Ben and Bikes, where every bike tells a story. If you had listened to last week's episode, you will know that I'm taking a month off from producing the Ben and Bikes podcast. In the meantime, I'm repeating two of my favorite episodes, this week, the second. Some of you may remember that my podcast used to be called Bikes And, where I'd fill in the next part with the subject of the show. For example, Bikes And Beer, Bikes And Community, etc. This episode goes all the way back to episode 15, Bikes And Making the Best of It where I was honored to talk to Jamie Osborne, a man who suffered a catastrophic spinal injury when his road bike's frame collapsed, traveling at more than 40 miles per hour. His approach to recovery is one of tenacity, character, and perseverance. If you like his story, please consider buying his book, Will Your Way Back. You can find a link on benhambikes.com. In June 2007, Jamie Osborne was doing the thing that listeners to this podcast love to do riding a bike. Nothing more, nothing less. He was on a bike ride with his colleagues, the same as he had for countless times before. Things were starting to get a little competitive, the lead group's pace increasing to 25 miles per hour. Jamie, ever so slightly the competitive and self-driven type, you'll learn more about that in a minute, found himself off this pace and dug deep within himself to catch up. Next came the unimaginable. His bike frame failed, and broke in two places, where the top tube and the down tube connect to the head tube. And there's a picture of this on the Bike Sand website. For those of you with a keen knowledge of human anatomy, the crash resulted in a catastrophic injury at Jamie's C5 to C7 vertebrae, for those that are not uh, at the top of his spine, and had severed one of his two vertebral arteries. Many of you might think that breaking your back means complete paralysis, but if there's one silver lining to this part of Jamie's story, it's that he only partially severed his spinal cord, known as an incomplete. Incompletes, like James, face a broad spectrum of recovery potential. Some never get out of a wheelchair, while others have been able to achieve largely independent lives with little to no accommodation. 
I learned about Jamie's recovery as a result of reading his excellent book, Will Your Way Back? How One Man Overcame Tragedy with a Winning Mindset. It is, of course, available from Amazon and from Barnes & Noble, and there's a link on this podcast webpage. His story of recovery is nothing short of miraculous. Jamie's approach, spurred on by one of his doctors, is that of get independent, and my gosh, does he do this. At no point in this book do I really read about self-pity. All I read about is a man obsessed with playing the cards he has dealt, celebrating small victories, and taking control of his life. I'm not going to provide too many spoilers here, but you should know that Jamie is riding a bike again, skiing, hiking, to name a few. He's even been a TEDx speaker. His story is that of inspiration, and his book is a must-read for anyone dealing with their own challenges, big or small. From the first few days after the crash in intensive care, to inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, the setback crash, more on that later, deep dive, depression, recovery phase two, and forward from there, my journey has been filled with ups and downs. My emotional state has run the gamut from suicidal thoughts to feelings of joy when I overcome an obstacle. With all that being said, Jamie Osborne, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Bikes and Podcast. Thank you for joining me today from sunny, I believe, Seattle. Well, thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. I, I hope I got most of that uh, that introduction right. Yes, very much so. Uh, just one uh, small little piece regarding the uh, frame fracture. Mm -hmm. the, act the main triangle frame actually fractured in three places. Gosh. Uh, it, it fractured at the top tube and then the down tube actually completely dismembered from the bike. So it actually broke down by the bottom bracket mm. as well as uh, just below the uh, uh, just below the, the stem. So it was a complete product failure. Yes, it was. And it took some time to really get to the bottom of the forensics and destructive analysis, accident reconstruction and whatnot. You know, we always knew early on uh, the what uh, in terms of what happened, but it took a fair amount of research and analysis and science to really uncover the why. But we did get to the bottom of the why, and unfortunately, the frame was improperly made, mm. and that was the source of the uh, catastrophic failure. And basically, the 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 front half of the bike. I mean, if you just took a saw and just sawed right down from the uh, front part of the top tube and went straight down. It just completely dismembered the, the front of the bike from the back half of the bike, and I just went straight down. Mm. You know, for those of us who, who have hit, you know, plus 50 miles an hour on a road bike heading downhill, uh, it's always in the back of your mind that you might burst a tire or something like that. Um, but for a frame to fail in that way uh, is, uh, is, is never really considered. No, it's not. And you, I mean, we all assume when we're riding, I mean, there's always, you know, inherent risks and we all do smart and intelligent things to, you know, to manage those risks, whether it's uh, an animal running out in front of you sure. or something uh, errant in the asphalt or whatever. But you never expect the main triangle frame, the, you know, the supposed strongest part of the bike exactly. to, to fail. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, fascinating. That that picture again is on the website, um, and um, I'll be sure to go back and, and look at that for that, that the other breaks. Um, since your son uh, Kevin reached out to me, I've managed to read your book, and I'm I'm 
more than a little humbled to be talking to someone who has dealt with such adversity, with such grace and dogged determination. Uh, the front of your book, that of a tree that's managed to find a way to grow out of the side of a mountain, says a lot. I, I assume that wasn't by chance. No, the choice of the cover page was actually very intentional. And the notion of the tree growing out the side of a cliff and having to face all of the elements and the forces and the headwinds that uh, invariably would be encountered up there is really akin to the kinds of things that I've had to face in terms of rebuilding my life from ground zero. You know, when you suffer an injury of this nature, your life is completely shattered. Yeah. And it's a matter of, okay, well, how are we going to rebuild this? How are we going to regrow and, and, and start over again? Uh, sometimes I've likened this injury to a complete physicality reset. You know, it's like somebody put their fingers on your life's keyboard and went control alt delete yeah. you know everything's initialized and okay we're going to start this process of growing all over again and the, the the concept of the tree on the cover design is in part to convey not only something that is very unusual in terms of a tree growing out the side of a cliff but also the branches and is akin to sort of rebuilding all these circuits yes that you know used to be able to tell my extremities what to do but yes. in this world of incomplete quadriplegia all of that function was completely uh went motionless from my mid-abdomen down which is typical from the level of injury that i had and so all this circuitry and teaching my extremities what to do again was all a very complex process and that that tree is in turn somewhat symbolic of rebuilding those those circuits. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Jamie, I, I've got to ask, why why did you write this book in the first place? Well, the book had its uh, origins very early on in my recovery, and uh, I wasn't intending to write a book really up until about three or four years ago. But from the time I was initially injured, I had no hand function at all, right. and so part of the process of learning how to use my fingers again and how to hold a utensil and hold a pen, how to be able to trace shapes. And then, you know, it's long, hard fought, painstaking, you know, seemingly benign, but very complex process of rebuilding and telling my fingers what to do. And then ultimately getting to keyboarding, uh, was work that I did for the first five or six years in earnest every day. And I kept journals, and you can see kind of the progression of how my handwriting improved. <laughs> and then, again, about three or four years ago, I was starting to get these, I guess I'll call them nudges from the universe. I was just, people were kind of saying to me, you know, Jamie, you've got a great story to tell. Mm -hmm. You've made an incredible recovery. You've overcome some huge obstacles. And you have something that you can offer to people in terms of hope and inspiration uh, guidance was something I really wasn't paying that close of attention to. But the more that people were sort of nudging me in this direction, I said, OK, there's something more going on here. And I'm not particularly spiritual, but I was just getting these messages every time I would have an encounter with somebody. And, and, and I'll bring you back to a story a couple of years ago when my wife and I and daughter were living down in Arizona. Uh, while my daughter was going to school down there. Mm -hmm. And I had the good fortune to meet 
uh, a two-star general, and he heard my story, and he was very captivated by it. And he connected me with a, uh, another vet who was also a published author. And he took a very keen interest in my story, and he says, you know, let's work together, and let's take the work that you've done, and let's frame this thing up into a book. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he was keenly interested in the vet population because there's obviously a lot of folks – Unfortunately, they're having to deal with uh, the similar kind of traumatic injury that I did. And so we worked together for about six months, and we got some initial structure to the book. Then my wife and I moved back here to Seattle in spring of 2015, and the work that we did, uh, this this vet's name was John. And John and I kind of lost touch a little bit, and my book work had languished and then I got connected with another person up here in Seattle who heard my story, and she said to me, she said, you know, you got an awesome story. Are you writing a book? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, funny you should ask. I had started one with John, but it has languished. And I guess this was just the final nudge of the universe because <laughs> after that point, I reached back out to John and I said, John, you know, I'm happy to continue to work together or I can work with somebody here locally or I can just put my head down and take the work we've done and just finish off a manuscript. Right. And he said, Jamie, why don't you just go on and, uh, and, and, and go with it yourself and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and let me know how it works out when you're done. Right. And so that was in the fall of 2015 and I buckled down and got the manuscript written and it's, it's its initial kind of crude form. I reached out to a couple of uh, publishers. And what was important to me was that I wanted to maintain rights to the book. And But in so doing, I also had to kind of pay as I went. But I also could cherry pick the services that I want. Right. And so that took us really through the bulk of 2016. And we went through all the steps. And they kind of you know held my hand and coached me along the way in terms of what I needed to do. And, uh, and that's what brought the book to um, completion and, and, uh, and was published in uh, February. Fantastic. Um, so it's, uh, it's June of 2007, about 12.30 in the afternoon. You're on your bike. You're riding with your colleagues. What happened next? So we were on a Thursday, day, uh, Thursday lunch ride. So the lunch ride at, at work was a, was a tradition that had been in place uh, actually many years before I joined it. I, I actually joined the lunch ride group in 1999 when I first started to cycle. And so this group rode together uh, every lunch uh, day of the week. And on this particular ride, it was a Thursday, which was typically uh, a very aggressive ride. So right. it was competitive with lots of attacks and bridging and, you know, your typical tactics. And there was a lot of, a lot of hills. This was the hill day. And the ride was generally between 18 to 20 miles. And we were about two thirds of the way through the ride. We'd just come down a very steep descent. You mentioned about going 50 miles an hour. Um, I was a good climber. And so I generally could um, pull ahead of the group a little bit in terms of the climb and, and the group knew me well enough that I was a fairly slow descender. And so they, they'd oftentimes let a little gap form uh, on the climb and then on the descent that generally either catch me or pass me. Well, in this case, the, a bulk of the group had passed me on the descent. And then we came on to flat terrain and we're heading north along the Green River, which is uh, just south Seattle. Yeah. And 
I had uh, separated. I had been dropped from the the bulk of the group. Not there was a few riders that were behind me, and I was really very depleted uh, at that point in the ride. And I was really struggling. I had I had ridden into work that morning, so I was already tired from a 25 mile ride in that morning. And this is three hours later, and we're on a all out ride. And so I just had to tap the engine room as deep as I could go. Finally got on the back wheel of the last cyclist in the in the group. And the next thing I remember was basically replayed to me. All I remember was hearing a lot of loud crunching, crumbling, metallic noises. And the next thing I know, I'm feeling like I'm falling. And I went straight down. The bike collapsed. I just went straight down. No pitch over. It wasn't one of these somersaults in the air. This is just the bike collapse underneath me, and I just go straight down. My, you know, I'm in the racing position. I'm in the drops, and my head goes straight down. And somehow, I don't know whether this was conscious or subconscious, but my neck must have turned slightly to the right because all the impact was on the right side of my neck. And my head was driven back to my left shoulder, if you can envision this, it bent over 90 degrees from the force of the impact. And it caused the vertebrate at the C5, 6, 7 level to jam into the central cord. And that's what caused the damage. Yeah. And then I must have rolled then onto my back and skidded and then came to a stop. Apparently, the fellow who was right behind me uh, T-boned me. He goes cartwheeling in the air, does a 360. Uh, Again, this is all reconstructed later. And he lands basically on his rear side, but he's still uh, clipped into his bike. And but he's he's you know he's 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 in shock, too, but he's not. He's still got his wits about him. He sees me not moving. And so he uh, unclips from his bike and makes his way over to me. And then he noticed that I was trying to move. And, you know, thank God he had some, you know, he had the wits about him to make sure that I was stationary and that I didn't move. He held my neck. Mm -hmm. And then I remember sort of being in and out. But I do have a couple of flashes of memory. And one of them was I was hearing this bunch of noises all around me and I'm thinking, what's this all about? And then I look above me and I can see the the sunlight coming up, coming down through the branches of the trees. And then it was like, oh, you know, it was like expletive, expletive. But basically, I'm the one who's down. And then I felt this incredible, intense pain really from my mid chest all the way up, you know, to the top of my head. But I couldn't feel anything below that point. It was like my body had been cut in half. Mm -hmm. And then there were sirens and the medics and the big hubbub about getting, uh, you know, vitals checked and so forth. My blood pressure was precipitously low. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually 60 over 38. And I know enough about medicine that when your blood pressure drops that low, they're about ready to pull out the epinephrine kits mm-hmm. and shoot you right through the chest. Right. And I just remember saying to myself, Jamie, just keep breathing, keep breathing. And they got me boarded up and into the medics, and then I was off to uh, Seattle's best level one trauma center. Yeah, so um, uh, two things spring to mind uh, with that piece of the story. One is, you know, I, I would imagine if you look back, Jamie, 
at this this whole timeline uh, you know and I'm talking about the initial timeline from the crash through to getting you to the hospital and then the first couple of weeks of recovery uh, there are pieces of there where people have made decisions which result in you being able to do what you're able to do today mm -hmm. um, the first one is your friend who supported your neck and made sure that it wasn't moved the second one I would suggest would be the medic crew who arrived and and did precisely the right things as far as supporting mm -hmm. your neck, controlling your neck, putting you on a board, etc. Mm -hmm. um, but but then there's that uh, crazy piece of the of your story where you know you end up as you say in Harborview Medical Center. Amazing doctors, nurses, specialists do magical things with people like yourselves recovering from spinal injuries. And thank goodness for people like that. But first things first, things could have taken a completely different turn when one doctor is about to send you to surgery as soon as you almost get there. Is that, is that accurate? That's correct. When I was on the gurney and I'm in the emergency room, again, I was in and out of consciousness. But I do have uh, some flashes of very clear memory. And one of them was there was a neurosurgeon who... Uh, bent over the gurney and talked to me about how I w had eviscerated all my ligamentous support of my of my spine on mm -hmm. my right side. And he had said to me, we're going to have to take you in for surgery and we're going to have to fuse uh, four of your vertebrate to stabilize your neck. Mm -hmm. And I remember begging to talk to my wife, uh, who I did talk to, and I said, you have to find... Dr. Chapman. Right. And this was a doctor that I knew. He was an orthopedic surgeon, also out of Harborview Medical Center at that time, and was a basically a gold standard in, in spinal cord care. And also someone that I had known uh, prior to my injury. I knew his reputation. And so I said, Diane, my wife, I said, you have to find him. And we need to get another opinion on this. And through serendipity, good luck, divine intervention. I don't know how she pulled it off because this man's incredibly well, she's busy. She's your wife. That's how Di she Diane's my wife. <laughs> and she, she managed to find uh, Dr. Chapman. Right. And, and uh, he actually came into the emergency room. And we probably broke some protocols and so forth. But he ended up taking my case mm -hmm. right then and there. And he made the decision to not operate. Right. And he said, okay, let's brace him up. Let's stabilize the neck and let's give it six months and see if this uh, the ligamentous support, which I had eviscerated on my right side, grows back and can actually support my neck. And six months later, he did uh, what's called a CT myelogram. They looked at the data and I remember he called me into his office. I was anxious as all get out because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And he looks over at me and he goes, hey, Jamie, um, this is kind of weird for a surgeon to say, but we don't need to operate yeah. your ligaments have grown back your cord is stable the cyst that was in your central cord is healed and we're just going to monitor it and you know knock on wood but nine and a half years later uh, my neck has been stable and it's a whole heck of a lot stronger no doubt. The, the the second element that i think really played a part and and maybe some of the medical practitioners might have a little different view on this but my opinion is they, uh, they have a shot that they inject uh, quite uh, once, they, once they have a firm read on what the problem is, 
is, uh, is an, a very strong steroid injection called methylprednisolone. And that particular steroid is a super strong anti-inflammatory steroid to control the secondary inflammation, which can cause additional damage in the cord if it gets out of hand, right. the, the secondary damage. And so the shot is intended to mitigate that. And, and, and they really want to get you that shot within eight hours of the trauma. And for me, they actually were able to administer that shot within the first couple of hours. One of the other uh, benefits of that shot, if I remember correctly, is it actually makes you feel pretty good. It does. <laughs> and uh, for a couple of days, I was I was one hyped up person. And uh, I was uh, from from the people that I come in to visit me. I was like, you know, this this chatty, chatty, chatty right. person had all this energy. But when it wore off a couple of days later, it was I went down in the tank yeah. very fast yeah, yeah absolutely you mentioned uh dr chapman uh, you're referring to of mm -hmm. course to dr jens chapman mm -hmm. um and needless to say as i as i said a moment ago there were many many wonderful people who were part of the team to help in your recovery um but he strands out as being uh the person who certainly contributed many sort of the lion's share of the strategic thinking in terms of your care um, that that stands out uh, pretty strongly in the in the book. Uh, do you still have a relationship with him? Very much so. Mm -hmm. He is uh, now part of the Seattle Science Foundation, which is uh, uh, a, a part of the Swedish Medical Center, which is also uh, it's it's all up here in the what we call the, the, the Capitol Hill. Uh, it's a medical mecca of medical centers that are all clustered really close together. Right. And so, yes, we very much stay in touch. Uh, I've had an opportunity to uh, present at a couple of conferences that he has uh, hosted in the past. Right. And, uh, and uh, you know, I've, I've, I've always have him available if I need to reach out to him if any kind of, uh, you know, if anything in my body becomes symptomatic again. But right. oh, we very much stay in touch. So I want to know if you call him Yenzi and whether he has a bike with shut up <laughs> legs written on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's uh, he's, uh, he's 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 quite a he's he's a he's a friend yeah. and uh, he's also a, a tremendous practitioner. And I will say all, something about, you know, in terms of other things that kind of came together to really make this uh, recovery journey. Uh, as strong and positive it is, as it is, has been was something that Yen said to me very early on in my my recovery. Uh, I was actually just admitted to inpatient rehab, so I, this was day four or five, I think. Right. And in the course of a conversation, he says to me, you know, Jamie, you need to choose and you need to get independent. Right. And when he said those words about getting independent, it completely focused everything about my recovery. I mean, it was, it was my vector right. and, and everything I approached was to try and do things myself. People wanted to help. Of course I needed to be enabled initially. You know, I had to be in a wheelchair. I needed nursing help. I needed people to help me with, uh, you know, my bodily functions and so forth. And, and, uh, <clears throat> but it didn't mean that that was where I wanted to be. And that certainly was my, my aim from day one till today and will always be is to do everything I can in my power not to be enabled by anyone or anything. Right. You know, I wanted to be able to learn how to drive. I wanted to be able to learn how to ambulate. I wanted to be able to use, be able to use my fingers again. Right. And all that has taken 
months, years to do, but its roots all go back to that statement that, that Jens gave me, which was, Jamie, you got to choose and, and you got to choose to get independent. So you'd be, you'd be interested to hear um, that uh, when I was <clears throat> thinking of the title for this podcast. So you, you may know every, everything on this podcast starts with bikes and, and mm -hmm. um, it was going to be bikes and being independent. Um, but I but I chose the uh, the other one, which was uh, bikes mm -hmm. and making the best of it, which mm -hmm. is one of the lessons learned uh, as part of this, if I if I remember correctly. Very much so. That uh, that statement you referred to in terms of making the best of it uh, is uh, from my from my mother-in-law. Right. And there's uh, there's a story as as you might recall uh, in terms of some of the hardships that she has faced in her life, yes. and one of them was that she was in a head-on car accident while she was traveling with her second husband in South Africa. And she uh, managed to come through the accident okay, but her husband suffered uh, traumatic brain injury. And she spent the next 14 or 15 years taking care of him mm -hmm. and was a devoted uh, wife and caregiver and so forth. And I always admired her. And I would always ask her, I said, how do you do it? And she goes, you know, Jamie, I just get up every day, every day and I make the best of it. And I said, well, hats off to you, because that's yeah. exactly what I've embraced in this whole journey. Very, very stoic. I'm taking a break from the Ben and Bikes podcast to tell you more about Dr. Squatch Natural Soap for Men. Made with natural ingredients from the earth, like oils, plants, goat's milk, Greek yogurt, and oatmeal. Turn your post-ride shower game up to 11 and get ready to get out of the shower feeling alive. Ship straight to your door, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. And if you sign up for monthly automatic soap delivery, you'll get free shipping on all orders. Visit drsquatch.com, that's D-R-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H.com for more details. And now back to this week's podcast. You mentioned the feeling, Jamie, of being helpless uh, a number of times in, in the book and not liking it, um, but you seem to be the opposite of helpless, frankly. Mm -hmm. That must have taken some strength. Where does that strength come from? I think the strength comes from my, my early upbringing. Um, I had, as, as I chronicle in the book, I didn't have the easiest upbringing. I had uh, I had some challenges with self-esteem. I had some challenges with attitude. I had some challenges just with, um, you know, feeling like I was a part of of, of a group. Uh, you had, uh, you had bad, bad eczema as well, right? I had very severe eczema as a child, uh, as a toddler, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very severe eczema, in fact. Uh, so much so that I think my parents were completely exasperated with how to how to deal with it because I would scratch my skin so severely I would just make it bleed. And then they would they would wrap me up in gauze, and then the next morning they'd have to take it off, and sometimes they'd end up tearing my skin. And I can remember my siblings talking about or, or recalling stories about me just screaming bloody murder. Right. And so I I had to overcome a lot. And there was just, you know, when you're dealing with, at that age as a toddler, you know, you're hoping for the comfort and love and and support of your mom. And I grew up really as an unwanted kid, quite honestly, and it's kind of hard to say that, but it is true. My mother wanted wanted a, wanted a girl and she got a boy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those imprints are, are, are life lasting. I mean, they still, they still affect me today yeah. in, in some fashion or another. Right. 
And so when you when I talk about this feeling helpless and sometimes useless and and who am I and and so forth and and where did the determination come to sort of want to fight that good fight to overcome that I think the roots of it really go back to my my early years of some of the challenges that I faced growing up and having to work hard to to overcome them and none of it was easy I mean, I'm not going to whitewash it. I mean, it was there was a lot of difficulties and a lot of challenges along that journey. But a lot of the strength that I've been able to muster and mobilize to get me through those periods of feeling useless and helpless really had its origins back to my uh, early years. I I am one one story that uh, that really struck home for me was you, you talking about the effort that it took to open one cereal box. <laughs> a task that we we take for granted. I mean, really, it seems like a simple thing, but for someone who has had uh, those abilities taken away from, uh, it must have been massively frustrating. But it, it's, there there are many stories like that in the book, where you mm-hmm. you're you've just taken this tenacious um, approach to a tenacious and steady approach, uh, mm-hmm. taking small things at a time, small wins. Building on those mm-hmm. wins and then and then moving on to the to the next level, is that is that a philosophy that that's helped you get through all this? One hundred percent. You know, from those early days when I was just trying to get you know like my thumb and my forefinger to touch each other, <laughs> you know, I mean, just trying to get them to touch, mm. let alone apply pressure, let alone being able to apply enough pressure to hold something. I mean, just getting to that point was a win, right? And to the point that I could actually pinch a straw enough so I could actually take the wrapper off it. Right. I mean, that was like a huge win. Right. And, and as I, as I started to look at this, I said, you know, these are little goals, seemingly pedestrian, you know, they're, they're innocuous, they're, they're seemingly trivial, but you know, when you're neurologically impaired, that's a big deal. Yeah, sure. And, and as these, little goals turned into little victories. Then it was a matter of, okay, can I touch my thumb to my middle finger? And it was like, you know, I kept trying to press and press and press. And then eventually I was able to do it. And then it was the same with my ring finger. And now we're talking years. And now we're talking my pinky. That's five years. (laughs) And yes, it was hard fought. It was painstakingly slow. It was, it was, frustrating Mm -hmm. at how slow it was and how hard fought it was, but the victories were coming and then they became additive and they became cumulative. And as they began to multiply, you know, they became reinforcing and, and then my confidence built up and then I wanted to take on bigger and bigger challenges. And I wanted to be able to get out of a wheelchair up to a walker. And then it was like, okay, I've gotten to the walker now. Now I want to get to a four prong cane. Right. Now I've gotten to a four prong cane. Now I want to get the forearm crutches and the same progression through all these things. You know, I always had been, I always had goals in my head, always had goals. Okay. I'm here. All right. I've, I've checked that box. Now I want to go to the next thing. It was like when I was first learning how to keyboard, they gave me this adaptive device that would, uh, would be almost like a pencil, uh, uh attached to my wrist. And, you know, with an eraser at the end and, and you could move your, you know, it was like maybe four or five inches from your wrist. And that was how I would keyboard just by moving my wrist up and down and punching the keys with that adaptive device. And then I said to myself, OK, I want to get to the point where my finger 
on command will actually be able to touch the right key. And again, seemingly benign, seemingly really trivial, but it's a big deal, a big deal. When, when you're facing these kinds of impairments. And that was just my, my thought process was little goals, little victories, bigger goals, bigger victories. And then ultimately in recent years, it's become really audacious goals that turned into super, super big victories. A, a, a BHAG? Is that what, what the, yeah, is that what they what call it? them, big, big, hairy, audacious goals. Well, There's another way to pronounce the A, but yes, audacious would be fine <laughs> for right now. Um, uh, this is a you know, podcast relating to bikes, um, so I'll ask it this way. I know, I know that you've done a lot of different sporting activities in your life, but um, when, you, when you look at this tenacity and this stamina, <clears throat> you know, how does that time on a bike relate to the mindset and approach to recovery and dealing with this adversity that you're, that you're dealing with? Oh, they connect in a huge way. Mm-hmm. You know, well, from the time I took up cycling, which was in 1999, it was either 98 or 99, I had done a lot of sports activities. I was always active in sports of one kind or another. I wouldn't say I was ever exceptional at any particular sport. But I had been a runner. I had been an active indoor court player playing squash for many years. And, and then my, my joints were beginning to feel the impacts of of of, you know, those very irregular pounding type movements. And somebody is suggesting, Hey, Jamie, you ought to take up cycling. So I said, okay, let's go get a bike. So I got a bike and it sat in a box for a year. I never opened it. And then somebody like prodded me and almost shamed me and getting it it down to the store to get it built and get, get on a bike, Jamie. And, uh, once I got on the bike and I started riding with a lunch ride group, I was hooked. Mm -hmm. And I realized this was a sport that, that, you know, I had an aerobic foundation. I had some fitness, had some leg strength. And, you know, this was a pretty competitive group. I mean, most of these, if they were actually categorized, we're all, I guess we would all be considered master's levels. But um, when we actually did some actual riding competitions around the area, we were competing with at least cat three level uh, cyclists. Right. And, although I was never formally categorized, but I probably would have been at that level. And, you know, once I had been riding for a number of years, but I'll tell you a a short story about what really, really solidified my commitment to cycling. And this was a ride that we did, uh, around Mount Rainier. And there's a great ride that goes, um, from a little town called Packwood and you can ride up to the top of paradise, which is a, which is a, a famous point right on Mount Rainier. It's about uh, 3,000 foot, maybe 3,500 foot climb. And then there's a great descent and then you have another climb out and then you circle back to the town you originate at, which is about 80 to 85 miles. Well, anyways, so I'm riding with these uh, group of very competitive cyclists and, you know, so I'm riding, get this, so I'm running a Bianchi Eros model bike. It's a steel bike mm-hmm. and it's got you know, like I'm a real gomer on a bike. When I first got it, it still had all the, you know, had all the lighting equipment. It wasn't, it wasn't built for, for racing at all. Right. And I had gone out and bought this bike just because I went to a, a store and said, what's a good intro bike to get, to, to get. And then I put on some bike shoes. Well, they turned out to be mountain bike shoes, but at the time I didn't know what they were. Why would you? They were rubber soled shoes and, and, uh, <laughs> You know, we're, 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 as I learned later, we're for mountain biking. Right. 
So here I am, you know, riding like this. And the, uh, the other guys on the, on the ride, of course, were all in their tricked out bikes with all the top componentry and whatnot. And they're talking about terms. I have no idea what Shimano or Durace or Ultegra or anything like that's like. All I know is how to pedal a bike. And so we're, we're on this climb and the climb starts getting competitive about halfway up. And if, a few cyclists drop off and, and there's a group of about six of us that are still together. And then a few more drop off and I'm, and I'm still holding on and it comes down to two of us. And then, and then it's just me and I'm off the front and I'm pedaling up and I am, I have no idea how much further we have to go. I am like almost hypoxic at this point, having an out of body experience and so much pain and suffering. But I said, just keep plugging away. Yep. And, uh, I eventually got up to the top and, you know, everybody talks about KOM, King of the Mountain, blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, I was, I was depleted. I didn't eat enough. I didn't know how to hydrate correctly. I felt absolutely terrible. <laughs> and I went to fill up my water bottle. I got some food in me and it took about 45 minutes for my body to like come back to the point where I could stand up and not feel like I was going to completely pass out. And I had this friend of mine come up to me who was, who was a really strong rider. I, uh, he's a very good friend today. And he said to me, he goes, Osborne, I, I don't know. Uh, how the hell do you do it? <laughs> and, uh, and from that, you know, when he said that to me, I was like, I, I, I just, I never looked back. I said, this sport, I just f- completely fell in love with. And as my, as my, technique improved as my ability improved as my strength improved strategy techniques all the things that everybody knows about uh cycling as i began to learn it i bought uh a new bike which was a cannondale uh i think it was a cad six at the time and then i uh, bought uh, a newer generation lighter racing bike which uh, unfortunately was a bike that ultimately failed Mm -hmm. But that bike uh, was uh, was light. I'd had it for about a year. And, you know, climbing was really my strength. I mean, we had great rides here in, in western Washington. We did lots of century rides, lots of hill rides. We climbed out in the Cascades, which have wonderful uh, climbs through uh, different uh, different passes. And we did a lot of training there. Uh, we also had the good fortune to ride over in Europe on a couple of occasions. We rode in France in 2004 and 2006 and had a chance to ride all the storied climbs that you see on the tour, you know, from Ventoux to Altuez and so forth. And and I just I was I just love the sport. I yeah. completely was captivated by it. And and, uh, you know, and I, I miss it terribly, although I have been able to get back up on a bike again. But I you know, because of my symptoms, I have to be a little extra cautious and I always suffer when I'm on a bike. So I don't do it very often, but it is a great thrill when I do get on the bike again. So, um, a wonderful sport. It is, it is a wonderful sport. Absolutely. But you know, um, your last statement uh, made me think that, you know, I've watched videos of you on your, on your website and YouTube and, one talking to medical staff, it looks like, and then being given an uh, an annual award at the Seattle Athletics Club. Mm-hmm. You know, to the outside observer, you would appear to have made an almost complete recovery, but it's not quite as simple as that. Um, can you tell us about how you are affected by your injury? You know, ten years after it happened. Yes, I deal with a number of residual deficits that 
you know, when you see some of those pictures of me on the bike or see me on the ski slopes, you might think, oh, well, this guy's 100 percent. He looks exactly. normal. Exactly. Uh, uh, that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. I suffer, number one, from chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And the chronic pain is whether I'm sitting, standing, lying down, I have it constantly. I have pain right now as we're sitting here talking. And my pain levels generally on a scale of one to 10 are always between a three and a five, mm-hmm. which means I, I kind of describe the, the pain as distressing, which means it's always on my mind and I'm always trying to how to figure out how to manage it, whether it's positional changes, stretching, icing. I'll take some ANSADs from time to time. I've done the narcotics. I went down that road very early on in my recovery and, you know, methadone, oxycodone is like, nope, it just completely messed up everything about my body. I don't weigh that much to begin with, uh, but I draw from 165 to 150. I said, doc, I don't care how much pain I have to deal with. We're not doing it anymore. You know, I'll deal with aspirin. I'll deal with Tylenol, but I'm not doing opiates anymore. And I've never, I've never touched them again. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second issue that I deal with, which is as limiting but in different ways is something called neurospasticity and neurospasticity has to do with a malfunctioning uh impulses that are basically causing my body to seize and constrict all the time Mm -hmm. and so even when i'm sitting here talking right now my hands want to close i can feel my inner thighs are, are seizing and i have to take medicines to to mitigate that, but there's other things that do help mitigate spasticity, and one of them is, surprisingly, is when I can get active, you know, I have to push through these barriers to to get to that point, but once I can increase my activity level, I can generate a sweat, and I have the medications, you know, sort of at their apex of, of benefit, you know, and I, might t- I take some pretty <coughs> heavy duty stuff, I mean, I take Valium, I take Baclofen, I take Tizanidine, I take Neurontin, these are all highly, highly sedating medicines, but my body, and I don't know whether it's just me, but for many, you know, one of those pills would put somebody to sleep, but I have worked it out so I can actually time them and dose them in such a way that I can, I can exercise soon after they give me windows where I can actually become more active. So like when you see me on the bike, I've actually taken a number of medicines before about an hour before I go out and then I'll have some with me in case I become, I start to become spastic. Mm -hmm. And what can happen on a bike, for example, is if I try to push the cadence too fast, my legs will seize and they'll completely lock up. They'll stop me. And, and, and if I sense any kind of anxiety, my body will do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I equate it with like having the emergency brake on. Mm -hmm. That's what it's like. When you see me ambulate, I, I, I have this very labored shuffle because I'm, I'm fighting against resistance. That's Mm -hmm. what spasticity is. Mm Um, I also have another big issue, which has to do with nighttime extensor cramps. So I never sleep well. Um, I rarely sleep in the aggregate more than six to seven hours. And I'm up at least four to six times a night, sometimes more. And that's either brought on because I have a compromised bladder or it can be brought on because I have these what are called extensor cramps, which are not what you might think is like your basic like calf cramp. It's Think of it as like almost like a violent seizure. You know, when we've actually taken video shots of me at night when I when I've had an extensor cramp and it can be triggered by something as simple as like reaching back to the back of my neck to scratch it. And all of a sudden I feel this wave 
of a cramp just swell up my body and my body can contort into these really odd positions that I have no control over. And I could pop a vertebrate. I could, I could, I could, I could strain my hip flexor. I could, I could, I could cause my hamstrings to yank, uh, uncontrollably and it lasts for several seconds and it almost sucks the oxygen. It's almost like having the wind knocked out of me and, and I'm struggling to get my breath back. And as soon as I can get my breath back, then I can get the, 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 the violent cramp to quiesce and then it will pass. Yep. And among the other deficits, I may have other deficits too, but those would probably be the three biggest ones that I deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, that is common with folks like myself who have spinal cord injury. Uh, everyone has it to different degrees. I happen to probably have a more severe case of spasticity um, than some of the other incomplete quads that I know. But on the flip side, I'm able to ambulate and I have fantastic hand function. I am really, really lucky to have the hand function I have. I'll say. But, you know, I have foot contractures and I have diminished sensation and I've had blood infections because I can't sense feeling if I cut myself or something like that. So um, there's things I always have to be mindful of. Yeah. So even though those pictures may convey something that looks very easy, it uh, it's not. Yeah, yeah I, I assumed as much. And as I, as I read your book, I picked up on a number of lessons that we can all draw from your experiences relating to dealing with adversity, big or small. Uh, there's a chapter based on it, um, and there's a good lot, a good list of about 15 of these lessons. Would you care to translate some of your experiences into the, sort of an approach that we can all learn from you in terms of dealing with adversity? Yeah, there, there's a couple. Um, one of them that I've used very heavily in my recovery, and I'll put the two together, is visualization and mindfulness. Mm. And while I'm no expert in mindfulness, I mean, there's famous authors out there that have written reams of stuff. So I, uh, so when I talk about mindfulness, I'm talking about, you know, from the world of Jamie Osborne <laughs> and how I think about it. Mm -hmm. When I think about mindfulness, I think about slowing things down and really trying to be in the moment. And Coupled with that, I visualize constantly. So these little pedestrian activities I described earlier about bringing my fingers together to being able to walk around the hospital just after I got discharged to bigger goals of, say, walking around my neighborhood, which was a kilometer to all these progression of goals. All these things are movies that I made in my head. I visualize them. Mm -hmm. And so. You know, one of the things that I think is a is a is a is a is a lesson that I'd like to share with your listeners and others through my book is the power of our minds. And I mean, it, and it's not this is not a novel concept, but I will say that if you are able to put it to use, if you want to put it to use, it is an incredibly powerful asset, and it has worked for me. I mean, like this experience that I had this past Christmas when I was able to get back up on skis, I had made this movie and visualized, visualized it in my head for over a decade, mm -hmm. or at least a decade. And I had it completely choreographed about everything about what that would look like and what it would take and what I would have to be able to do and how physically strong I would have to be. All these things I had visualized. And so that's one of the I think really key takeaways that I'm hoping people will draw from this is the power of 
a, a concept called neuroplasticity. So I used the word neurospasticity before, but this is a slightly different term. It's called plasticity of the brain. And your brain has a remarkable ability to adapt and to reorganize. And there's lots of books that have been written on this subject. And I really think that the magic of overcoming illness, disease, accidents, really, if, if science can figure out how to unlock how the brain is ab able to do that, I don't think the magic's in stem cell. I don't think the magic's in some of these other things. I really think it has to do with unlocking how neuroplasticity works in the brain. So those are two things. And two other things, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of go back to my mother-in-law when she talked about make the best of it and also accept the fact that life isn't fair. And sometimes we're just going to get dealt hands that we didn't choose to have happen. Sure. And so it's okay. I didn't choose to have this happen. I didn't choose to be in a catastrophic accident. But I can exercise how I choose to respond to it. And it's like, okay, Jamie, you know, it's like that night in the hospital. What am I going to do? You know, you're at a fork in the road, Jamie. You're going to surrender on one hand. You're going to give in, let this thing defeat you. Or are you going to fight the good fight? And I just said, okay, I have the power to choose. I can choose how I'm going to respond to this. And so that's another message that I, I think is can resonate and be helpful for people who may be at that kind of crossroads in whatever life adversity or infirmity they might be dealing with is, is making that choice and not looking back. Don't look in the rearview mirror. Just keep going. Stay on the course that you've set for yourself and never give up. That's fine. That's so fine. those are a couple of key messages that I uh, that I that I wanted to share. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. Uh, that's a, is it, yours is a truly remarkable story from a truly remarkable and brave man. Uh, you have uh, clearly chosen to fight the good fight there, and um, thank you very much for for sharing with uh, sharing your story with us. It's um, it's a great lesson, and um, we we really appreciate it. As I said in my introduction. Uh, Jamie's book uh, is called Will Your Way Back? How One Man Overcame Tragedy with a Winning Mindset. It is available on Amazon and in Barnes & Noble. Um, if you go to the Bike Sand podcast page, uh, you will see a, uh, a download. Uh, it'll take you straight to Amazon and make things easy for you. Uh, Jamie, um, thank you very much. Um, and um, you, you, you're a remarkable man. Thank you very much indeed. Well, Ben, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, been a great pleasure. Not at all. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Ben and Bikes podcast. You'll find this and many other episodes about athletes, authors, filmmakers, and community organizers, all with a story to tell about bikes by visiting benandbikes.com. Thank you for listening. We'd sure appreciate it if you could rate and review the Ben and Bikes podcast wherever you listen. We appreciate your support, and thanks for helping us connect with other bike enthusiasts. If you have a bike story to tell, email us, ben at benandbikes.com.